0: Hey, everybody, this is Pastor Dan with a quick message before we get started. We're all dealing with the coronavirus outbreak right now, as I'm sure you are too. Um, Here at Brockport First Baptist, we've had to suspend all in-person events until further notice, which includes our Sunday morning worship services. And I'm sure that public events and public places around you have probably been impacted in similar ways. We are going to get through this, but uh, please pray for us and know that you are in our prayers as well. Uh, I also want to let you know, though, that uh, until we resume in-person worship services, we will be conducting our Sunday morning worship virtually online. So you can actually navigate over to our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org, where you'll be able to see uh, a full video of the service that this week's sermon comes from. Hope you enjoy it. I hope to see you over there. Thanks, as always, for liking, sharing, and supporting our work. Uh, If you want to give to support our ministries, you can also do that on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Thank you so much. Grace, peace, and God bless.
1: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast
0: of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org.
1: Good morning everybody. My name is Travis Despot, and I will be doing the scripture reading for today. This is going to be from 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 to 3. 11 to 12 and 21 through 25. I will be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice and all guilt, insincerity, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure, spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that though they may line you as evildoers, they may see you honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes to judge. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you should follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that free from sins we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen.
0: Thank you so much for that reading, Travis, and thank you, Courtney, for our special music. That was awesome. We're going to continue with our Lenten teaching series today, Metaphors of the Cross, where each week we've been looking at different ways that Christians in centuries past have understood the death of Jesus and how it saves us. And with the last two teachings in this series, we're going to get Medieval. All right, the, the metaphors we've looked at so far have all come from the early church. We talked about Jesus as a ransom that God offers to the devil uh, to free humanity from our enslavement to sin. We talked about Jesus as the victor, the cross as Jesus' ultimate victory over the forces of, of darkness. And last week we talked about Jesus as the new humanity or the new Adam who through his life, death, and resurrection sets a new pattern for human life That frees us from our enslavement to the pattern of Adam. All these metaphors for the cross developed within the first few centuries of the church. And for really the first millennium, for the first like thousand years or so of Christian history, up until about the 12th century, these were the dominant metaphors for the cross we got two more weeks of this series, and for these last two teachings, we're going to go a bit later. Still ancient for us, of course, but we're going to look at two metaphors that really came into their own during the Middle Ages. Jesus the example and Jesus the sacrifice. And today I want to talk to you about Jesus the example, which is technically out of order. Like, uh, if we really wanted to go chronologically through this, we would do sacrifice first and then example. But I actually think sacrifice is a better one to end on. <clears throat> so we're going to save that for next week. That's that's a little something to, to whet your appetite. So Jesus the Example. Now, I was really up front with you all last week when we talked about Jesus as the new humanity. I admitted that out of all these metaphors we're looking at, that one was really my favorite. And I was a little hesitant to acknowledge that, honestly, because I don't want to sway you guys one way or the other. You know, I'm the pastor here. I'm, I'm the religious expert, Right. Um, and I don't want anyone to be like, well, Pastor Dan really likes this one, so I guess I have to like this one too. No, no, no. Ew. Gross. Ech. Please don't do that. Uh, feel free to disagree with me, always. This is a Baptist church, after all. Our, our movement has always been about freedom of conscience. And I mean, honestly, what Baptist church has ever agreed with its pastor? Am I, am I right? Yeah? Uh, anyway. At the risk of swaying you all one way or the other, and in the spirit of full transparency, I feel like I should acknowledge right up front that Jesus the example has always been my least favorite metaphor for the cross. And I think it's because out of all the other metaphors out there, out of all the different ways Christians in ages past have thought about and wrestled with the meaning of the cross, this one is probably the least biblical. And now when I say that, I don't mean that this metaphor is heretical or unbiblical or that it's a bad way to look at the cross at all. No, no, no. We we wouldn't be talking about it if that were the case. But when I say that this metaphor is the least biblical, what I mean is that this metaphor is the hardest one to connect to a specific passage in Scripture. Like our scripture reading for today from First Peter, it talks about Jesus as an example. That's that's getting at this idea. We could also look at a book like First John, which has a lot to say about the transformational love of God in Christ. Um, but but that's really about the closest you're going to get to a proof text for this metaphor. Now, as we dig into this, I think we're going to see that this metaphor actually connects with a lot of ideas from Scripture. There's actually a few biblical ideas this metaphor highlights that the other metaphors that we've talked about in this series miss completely. But you don't really get a one-to-one in this case. You don't find Jesus the example spelled out exactly in this way anywhere in the Bible. Does does that make sense? Good. Good. Now, um, in stuffy academic theological circles, uh, the actual title for this metaphor is Moral Influence Theory, or Moral Exemplar. You don't have to remember that, of course, and I prefer to stick with Jesus the Example, but I share these more like academic labels with you so that if you want to dig a bit deeper and Google this stuff, you know what to search for, okay? Jesus the Example, or the Moral Exemplar Theory of the Atonement, is the idea that the way Jesus saves us is by serving as an example for us. That through his life, death, and resurrection, but especially through his death, Jesus becomes this this moral example for us, this image that influences us and changes us, that shakes us free from the grip of sin and actually enables us to pursue a holy life. That's moral influence theory in a nutshell. And unlike the other metaphors we've looked at so far in this series, uh, which all developed over time, multiple generations by various leaders in the early centuries of the church, this view of the cross really has its roots with one guy. There were versions of this floating around out there in the early centuries of the church, but it was really one guy in the 12th century, the 1100s A.D., who brought it all together and articulated it in, in this particular way. And that guy was Peter Abelard. Now, the name Peter Abelard means absolutely nothing to you or to me, uh, but this guy was kind of a big deal in his day. He, he lived a pretty wild life, and I think it's helpful to highlight some of that just to get an idea of where this metaphor is coming from. Peter Abelard was born in the year 1079. He was French, and as a young man, he studied to become a priest. Uh, when that didn't work out, he ended up as a theology professor, a philosopher, and a musician. Okay, this guy wrote poetry. He was a bit of a dreamboat. The ladies loved him. Think of him as a sort of uh, uh, a medieval churchy rock star, if that makes any sense. Okay, are we are we kind of getting a picture of who this guy was? So, um, as a young man, Peter Abelard fell in love with this woman named Heloise. They were madly in love. They were also both young, dumb, and unmarried. Uh, So they had an affair, she got pregnant, and then they were secretly married, okay? But then Heloise's uncle found out about it. Uh, He was the paternal figure for Heloise, and uh, he didn't take it very well. (laughs) Um, Heloise's uncle had Peter Abelard castrated, you know, like you do, uh, he got the marriage annulled. He forbid Peter and Heloise to ever see each other again, and he sent Heloise off to become a nun. Peter, in turn, became a monk. He he lived the rest of his life in, well, well really forced celibacy because, you know. Um, <laughs> but that was it. That was it. Uh, that was the end of it. Peter and Heloise spent the rest of their lives separated, except that their love never died. And for the rest of their lives, for the rest of their time on this earth, Peter and Heloise sent love letters back and forth to each other. Those letters have since been published. You can actually go out and and buy the book. You can read the letters of Abelard and Heloise. I know because I had to read it in seminary. But it is some of the, the best, most romantic, and heartbreaking stuff out there if you're into that kind of thing. But Peter and Heloise spent the rest of their lives separated. She was a nun. Uh, He went on to become a very successful monk and philosopher and an abbot. Um, And then when they both died, they were buried together in Paris. Which I guess for the Middle Ages is about as happy of an ending as we can expect, right? Uh, Anyway, I think it's important to know that backstory a bit as we talk about this metaphor. Because it helps explain a little something about who Peter Abelard was and where he was coming from. Abelard was a romantic. More than that, he was someone who knew what it was to wrestle quite publicly with sin, temptation, and shame, all while simultaneously pursuing a life of faith, discipline, and obedience. And it's Abelard's nuanced understanding of sin that I think makes Jesus the example such a powerful and important metaphor of the cross. Now, we've, we've touched on this in previous weeks, but a lot of the ways that we've been taught to think about the cross, a lot of the modern handlings of the cross and the mechanics of how it all works, a lot of that is very abstract and theoretical. Like the way we typically think about the cross, it's like it's like human beings are over here and God is over there, and we could get together if it weren't for sin. We often think about sin in this very abstract sense as, as just this thing That's standing between us and God. Sometimes it's envisioned as a wall. Sometimes it's a gulf or a canyon. But all we need is some sort of a bridge. Something that will help us jump over sin. Get over sin. And join God on the other side of the divide. That's a very objective view of sin. Which is to say that it envisions sin as an object. Something separate and distinct from us that is standing between us and God. But what if, instead of thinking about sin in a purely objective sense, as a wall, or a canyon, or what have you, what if our view of sin looked more like this? Now, <laughs> this is this is kind of a funny picture, right? Ho- hopefully, hopefully you're all laughing at home. Uh, and for anyone who's listening on the podcast right now, obviously you can't see what we're looking at. Uh, we're looking at that classic meme out there floating around the internet, where you've got a guy walking with his girlfriend, but he's checking out another lady who's walking by. And we've labeled the guy humanity, the girlfriend is God, and then the lady he's checking out is sin. Do you, do you have that image in your head? Good. This is what a subjective view of sin looks like. And of course, we're dealing with metaphors here. It's not an either or, it's both and. But sin is not just an object that stands passively between us and God, separate from us. Sin is also a subject that we are attracted to. It's something that we actively pursue, something that, that lures us away from God. God's trying, right? Like like God's being a good faithful partner, a perfect partner, really. God's walking with us, holding our hand, writing us poetry, giving us flowers, trying to woo us. But man, that sin over there looks really good. Do you do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Are you following me on this? Is this not the story of the entire Bible? Is this not the story of Israel, God's people, who God delivered out of slavery, brought into the promised land, blessed with resources, uh, a king, the law? And yet, the story of the Bible is the story of God's people continually pursuing sin. Throughout the Old Testament, the biblical authors often use a marriage metaphor to talk about God's relationship to the Israelites, where where God is imagined as the groom and Israel is the bride, and God is the faithful partner to Israel. Time and time again, God proves God's faithfulness, but the people keep screwing around. They keep chasing after every Tom, Dick, and Harry out there, every, every Baal, every Asherah, name your false God. That's the story of the Bible, and it's also our story. It's the struggle of our lives. And that's the key thing that Peter Abelard saw standing in the way of our salvation. We are so enamored by sin, so allured by it, so attracted to it, that God had to do something huge to win our hearts. God had to go to extreme measures to shake us free from sin and to demonstrate God's love for us. And Jesus is that demonstration. Jesus is the example that turns our hearts toward God. This metaphor envisions the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as a sort of love poem. It's God's grand act of love and personal sacrifice intended to change our hearts and enable us to follow Him. And when we think about Jesus as the example, uh, there's there's two primary ways the cross accomplishes this. It's It's a helpful way to think about this metaphor, this image. Think of it as like the two outstretched arms of Jesus nailed to the cross, but also outstretched to embrace us. And with one hand, Jesus reveals God's love for us. And with the other hand, Jesus empowers us to turn from sin and to follow God. That's the two hands of Jesus on the cross. In one sense, the death of Jesus is an image. It's an example that's meant to wake us up to the extent of God's love for us. It's like God is saying, look how much I love you. Look how badly I want you back. Look what I'm willing to give up to set you free. Think of the Roman soldier who nails Jesus to the cross. And then after he dies, when Jesus lets out that cry, offers his spirit to God, the soldier exclaims, truly this man was God's son. That's what the image of Jesus on the cross should do for all of us. You know, we don't keep a lot of crucifixes in Protestant churches, unfortunately. Um, For whatever reason, that came to be seen at some point as a Catholic thing. But man, I I think we could learn a thing or two from the Catholics on this point. Because they get it. They understand the power of an image like that to wake us up. To provoke something inside of us that, that makes us aware of our own sin and our own violence, but that's only the first hand. The first hand of Jesus reveals God's love for us. It wakes us up, but the second hand lifts us up. It empowers us to live a life of discipleship. The second hand empowers us to pursue holiness. Holiness. In the Middle Ages, when Abelard articulated this view of the cross, he was pushing against a transactional understanding of the cross that was especially popular in his day. Uh, That's the Jesus has sacrificed stuff that we're going to get into next week. But he was pushing against this idea that salvation is a transaction, that, that you're guilty of sin, but Jesus paid the debt. So all you need to do is X, Y, and Z, and then poof, you're good. Transaction complete, salvation achieved. The Jesus as example metaphor pushes against that because a transactional view of salvation results in a transactional view of faith. A view of faith that says, you know what? I'm good. I'm covered. I'm saved. I got baptized. I said a prayer and accepted Jesus as my Savior when I was eight years old. I'm in. I know where I'm going when I die, and that's what really matters, right? So now... I can live however I want because I'm forgiven. Have you ever encountered this attitude before? I know I have. I led youth in college ministry for years before being called into full-time ministry here. So I know this attitude all too well. A transactional view of the faith is a very adolescent view of the faith. But unfortunately, it's an understanding of faith that very few people ever advance beyond. It's a view of faith that's obsessed with one thing. Where am I going to go when I die? What do I have to do? What's the bare minimum needed to go to the good place and not the bad place? And so we say a prayer or we get baptized, we check a box, and that's it. That's all faith ever really means for us. And you know, that might be enough. If your only goal in all this is to get into heaven when you die, if you just want like eternal fire insurance or whatever, that's probably enough. We are saved through grace after all. So, yeah, say a magic prayer, have some faith, and you're good. You're saved. But man, I have a really hard time calling that kind of faith salvation. Because to me, that is a very anemic. A very lame and shallow view of what it is to be saved. There's no relationship there. There's nothing compelling or beautiful about that. It's a transaction. It's an exchange of goods between us and God, two otherwise unrelated parties. That's not faith. Or at least that's not any form of faith that I have any interest in personally. Faith is an adventure. It's a relationship that's cultivated over a lifetime. It's a lifetime of struggle, of ups and downs. Moments when you and God are as close as ever, and then other moments where like, you're not even sure that you recognize God anymore. That's, that's faith. That's what it looks like to pursue holiness. That's life as a disciple. It's not about earning anything, achieving anything, trying to live up to some unreachable standard. No. It's about waking up. And glimpsing the extent of God's love for us on the cross. And then taking hold of that other outstretched hand of Jesus that offers to lift us up so that we can pursue a life of discipleship. That's Jesus the example. Let's pray. God, we confess that we have been a Lord by sin. We confess that even though we believe in you, Lord, We have placed our trust in you, but we still struggle. We still fail. We still go astray. But God, we know that you are faithful. And that you have given us the ultimate example of your faithfulness in Christ. And so God, we lean on those outstretched arms of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for waking us up by your dramatic love poured out on the cross. And God, we ask that you would empower us to follow you. Don't let us settle for a faith that's only a transaction. But empower us, Lord, to live a faith that's truly an adventure. To pursue holiness and a radical life of discipleship. We ask this in your name. Amen. thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.